would your life be transformed if God gave you a supernatural sign? Although we might prefer to have some spectacular confirmation from God, it was Jesus himself who warned us against seeking miracles and signs. In fact, he said it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks signs. Our God is a faith God, and he wants us to walk by faith. But Jesus did promise his generation a spectacular sign that was also a puzzle. Let's look at the sign Jesus promised, the sign of Jonah. The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Hello, I'm Christine Dark. In the Gospels in Matthew 16, 4, Jesus warned that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after signs from heaven. Despite all the spectacular miracles that he had performed in front of countless witnesses, he said the true sign of his messiahship that would be given to his generation was the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now that's a puzzle, a riddle. And the Jewish religious leaders, the rabbis, do love riddles, acronyms, and intriguing mysteries. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.22, the Apostle Paul described his own beloved Jewish people as those who seek a sign from heaven, whereas Paul said the Greeks sought human wisdom. So what was the sign of Jonah, the specific sign that Jesus promised his generation? And here's another related question. Why do the Jewish people read the book of the prophet Jonah every year during the afternoon service of Yom Kippur, their Day of Atonement? Every time they read the book of Jonah, they're reading about the specific sign that Jesus promised to his Jewish brethren. The book of Jonah is only four chapters, and it's the Haftarah portion, the portion from the prophets that's read to facilitate repentance on the solemn Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But first of all, who was Jonah? Well, Jonah was an Israelite commissioned by God to prophesy the destruction of Nineveh, the capital of the dreaded and powerful Assyrian Empire, because of that city's great wickedness. But Jonah was a reluctant rebel prophet, and he tried to escape from the presence of the Lord by purchasing passage on a boat that was bound across the Mediterranean Sea to a place called Tarshish, which some scholars interpret to be modern-day Britain. However, perhaps you know the narrative, the rebel prophet was thrown overboard by the ship's crew because of supernatural backlash from God. God had stirred up a life-threatening storm and so the disobedient prophet was thrown overboard and swallowed by a big fish. The Hebrew text described the big fish as dag gadol, big fish, not a whale. There's another word in Hebrew for a whale, leviathan, which I suppose is best translated as a sea monster. 
It's fascinating that in the book of Jonah, Dag Gadol, great fish, is written in the masculine form. However, the Hebrew changes the gender to Daga, meaning a female fish. Therefore, the verses read like this, And the Lord provided a great fish, Dag Gadol, masculine, for Jonah, and it swallowed him. And Jonah sat in the belly of the fish, still a male fish, for three days and nights. Then from the belly of the Daga, suddenly it's a female fish, Jonah began to pray. However, the change of gender led the sages to reason that this was a spiritual lesson, meaning that Jonah was comfortable in the roomy male fish, so he didn't pray properly. But then God transferred Jonah to a smaller female fish, and the prophet was exceedingly uncomfortable, and so he began praying earnestly. The confines of a womb come to mind, and as Jesus said, he was typified in Jonah. Jesus was also confined to a woman's womb, the womb of Mary. But both Jonah and Jesus were birthed. The sign of Jonah is the sign, in fact, of resurrection. I believe the sign of Jonah will increasingly be confirmed to the Jewish people during their Day of Atonement. It must be revealed because Bible prophecy is being fulfilled exponentially. You see, the first 70 years of Israel's rebirth have been years of building and preparation. Now that Israel has reached its 71st year as a nation reborn, one rabbi told me that the times are changing to a spiritual period of revelation in Israel. So now our reluctant prophet Jonah miraculously survived his ordeal. And can you imagine how horrific it was being in the stomach of the great fish, the noxious odors and the digestive acids, the darkness? Three days later, the mysterious fish vomited Jonah alive onto the seashore. And this time, he decided to obey God and he went to preach against Nineveh. So I come back to one of my questions. Why in the providence of God do the Jews read this particular story every year on the most solemn day in their calendar, the fast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? It's because the narrative of the prophet Jonah in the Hebrew Scriptures foreshadowed the Messiah, his death, burial, and especially his miraculous resurrection on the third day. Jesus said the sign of the prophet Jonah was the final sign he would give to his generation. And that sign, of course, speaks of his rejection, death, and being swallowed up in a grave, but also his resurrection after three days. But in the meantime, several reasons are given by the rabbis for reading the book of Jonah on Yom Kippur. First of all, it's just good to be reminded that if God could forgive Nineveh in the days of the Bible, God can forgive us. Despite our past behavior, God's benevolence and mercy await us if we will repent full-heartedly. Secondly, the book of Jonah teaches that the entire world is in God's hands. The wind, the sea, and the great fish were all used by God in the narrative, reflecting the truth of Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and 
everything in it. A third point the rabbis make is that the story of Jonah teaches that no one is beyond the reach of God. Like Jonah, we are incapable of eluding God Almighty. Amen. Well, in Christian theology, just as God brought Jonah back to life after being swallowed by the great fish, so the resurrection of Jesus vindicates his claim to be Messiah, Savior, and Redeemer of the world. Jesus said in Matthew 12:40, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jesus was drawing on imagery in Jonah's prayer when Jonah metaphorically declared, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Jesus was literally entombed in the belly of Sheol. He would descend into hell to conquer death on behalf of repentant sinners and preach to spirits who were held captive in hell. And if you want a Bible reference for that, check out 1 Peter 3.19. You see, in Christian theology, after Jesus' death, his soul descended into the realm of the dead. The triumphant descent of Messiah into hell, or Hades, between the time of his crucifixion and his resurrection, was when he brought salvation to all the righteous who had died since the beginning of the world. Well, in Luke chapter 11, as the crowds were increasing, Jesus observed, This is a wicked generation. It demands a sign but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. He said, For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so the Son of Man will be a sign to this generation. He also said, The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And now one greater than Solomon is here. And he said, the men of Nineveh will stand at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at Jonah's preaching. But now one greater than Jonah is here, he said. Well, Jesus did generously pour out on his generation a multitude of signs, undeniable messianic miracles, healing the blind, the lame and lepers, raising the dead. However, the ultimate sign Jesus offered, even the sign of the resurrection, meant that he was born to die as the Savior of the world. It was the will of God. And ironically, his nation must actually hand him over to be crucified by the Romans in order for them to obtain the sign of Jonah. Isn't that amazing? Well, I'm convinced that Jesus performed all that could be done to convince an evil and adulterous generation when he promised them as the last in a long series of miracles, the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man was to his generation. Well, after Jonah's resurrection onto the shore, he was recommissioned by God. And this time, the repentant preacher obeyed. 
And after that long trek across the desert, then he walked across the city, crying, In forty days Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, have you ever wondered how Jonah achieved such a marvelous, persuasive revival in Nineveh that caused everybody to repent from the king in the palace down to the pauper in his hovel? Jonah was a foreigner, a stranger, and an enemy to that pagan nation, but he must have given striking evidence that he spoke in God's name. And what was it? It was the testimony of his resurrection. As the commentaries point out, this prophet of disaster had been ensconced three days and three nights in the depths of the waters, and then he rose up uninjured from that strangest of tombs. And so on this unique testimony, Nineveh received Jonah as a prophet authorized by God. And by the way, Archaeologists report discoveries of the fish god Dagon in sculptures that have been uncovered in Nineveh, Assyria. No doubt telling his amazing testimony of near death in the sea monster, the people of Nineveh believed the strange messenger, and even the king humbled himself. The king put on sackcloth and sat in ashes, and the king made a proclamation decreeing a fast including the command to wear sackcloth, to pray, and to repent. The entire city was humbled and broken, and even the people put sackcloth on their animals. Imagine that. Can you imagine that happening in any revival, when even our field animals and our pets would have to wear sackcloth? But God saw their repentant hearts, and he spared the city at that time. But later the Assyrians would carry away the northern tribes of Israel. And that's why Jonah hated them, because he saw them as a strategic threat to his nation. But I find this so fascinating that every year the fast of Nineveh is observed by the Eastern churches. The fast of Nineveh in Aramaic, meaning literally the petition of the Ninevites, is a three-day fast that commemorates the three days that Jonah spent in the belly of the great fish and the subsequent fast and repentance of the Ninevites at Jonah's preaching. The fast originated in the Church of the East and later spread to the Oriental Orthodox churches, including the Coptic and Armenian churches. I believe this topic is very current because today God is reviving the Eastern Church in the midst of great persecutions, and it's all in anticipation of Isaiah chapter 19 and verses 23 to 25, which speak of peace between Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. Isis may have tried to destroy the tomb of Jonah in 2015, but they can never destroy the living church. Today, the Assyrian believers are greatly persecuted and they've paid a gigantic price to maintain their Christian faith. And so I believe it's appropriate that Jesus prophesied the men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation, and they will condemn those that didn't repent because the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
Well, the evidence recorded in the Gospels of the resurrection of King Messiah and in the preaching of the apostles and the gift of the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, all of this far exceeded the preaching of Jonah. One of the remarkable aspects of the little book of Jonah is how the prophet really didn't love the people to whom he preached. And that makes the miracle of Nineveh's repentance even greater. You see, generally speaking, great revivals are facilitated by preachers who actually love and pray for earnestly the people to whom they're sent. It's only natural that people are more apt to respond to a preacher who has love in his or her heart. But it wasn't so with Jonah. He was displeased that the people responded. Can you imagine? As an evangelist, I would be overjoyed that a whole city responded so beautifully to my gospel message. It would be the highlight of my life. But Jonah sulked. He complained that God is merciful. He knew it was inevitable that God would not fulfill the calamities that he threatened if the people repented. So he left the city and made a little shelter for himself. He made a sukkah, as it's known in Hebrew, a booth, just to wait to see what would happen. He wanted to see if God would destroy the city or not. And God caused a plant to grow over Jonah's shelter to give him some shade from the hammering sun in that region. And of course, I've been in that area of the world, and it is hot. But then God caused a worm to bite the plant's root, and the leaves withered exposing the prophet to the full force of the sun. Now Jonah complained, and he pled for God to kill him. And the Lord said, You cared more about the plant that died, but shouldn't I have had pity on Nineveh, that great city, and also much cattle? What a perspective. Well, according to Ellicott's commentary, the men of Nineveh shall rise in the resurrection the word rise is used not of the mere fact of resurrection, but of standing up as witnesses. The repentance of the heathen in their search after wisdom with far poorer opportunities than Jesus' generation had or our generation today. They will put to shame any slowness of unbelief. Now, concerning Matthew chapter 12, the Lord made extraordinary claims. He alluded to himself as being greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, and greater than King Solomon. Could these claims be rightly claimed by any man unless he was indeed King Messiah? So I want to go back to this thought. It's remarkable that the contemporaries of Jesus should be inquiring a sign after he had done so many miracles, including raising the dead and healing lepers and multiplying food. The commentaries say this desire for confirmation is not in itself wrong, but the leaders were not satisfied with the signs that Jesus offered. They wanted a further sign from heaven, like fire falling as in the days of Elijah. His enemies were always trying to ensnare him. They hoped to catch Jesus off guard or to trap him into saying something that could be turned into an impeachable offense. According to his enemies, 
Jesus' miracles didn't prove his divine claim because, they reasoned, the miracles had natural explanations. If he really meant them to believe in him, he must do something even more spectacular, like make thunder and rain from a clear sky, as Samuel did in 1 Samuel 12:18, or call fire down from heaven, as Elijah did in 1 Kings 18 and verse 38. It's interesting that the Lord refused to do those sorts of things. But in the future, the false prophet of the Antichrist, according to the book of Revelation, will cause fire to fall from heaven and the people will be deceived. Think about that. Now the commentaries say it's unjust to accuse doubters of exceptional wickedness. On the other hand, skepticism is not an indication of sanctity. So Jesus made it clear that he wouldn't satisfy an unworthy demand for a sign. No portent in the sky can prove a spiritual truth to a person who is hardened or spiritually asleep. In fact, the commentaries say you might as well expect the blast of a trumpet to reveal the beauty of a landscape to a blind man. Therefore, the Messiah gave the only sign that was necessary, the sign of Jonah. He never disappoints an honest seeker after truth. His way was to bring a genuine proof to the awakened soul, and he compared this truth to the sign of Jonah. It was a much more concrete sign, and a spectacular one, when you think about it, than thunder or fire. What would most help to awaken men was the mystery of the Lord's death and resurrection. That was the true sign of Jesus' spiritual mission. And this sign was foreshadowed in the story of Jonah. It was all they would get, but it was enough to demonstrate his deity. They must do the best they could to understand it. Like Jesus' parables, only true hearts could understand and fathom the sign of Jonah. His answer to their demand was the sign of Jonah, something to puzzle over. It was a hard nut to crack, so to speak. Can we imagine how the Pharisees, who were so clever at splitting theological hairs in argument, discussed this sign of Jonah? So to them, Jesus was saying that the sign was saying, your prejudiced opposition to me will only grow until it culminates in securing my death. You will throw me overboard, as Jonah was thrown overboard and discarded into the sea. But you will be baffled, like Jonah, because I shall rise again. Hallelujah! The sign of the divine origin, the divine mission, and the divine nature of Messiah is his resurrection from the dead. The religious parties of Jesus' day sought a sign from heaven. And now this is very important to understand. The commentaries explain the reason why the Jewish nation was looking for the sign from heaven is because of the sign mentioned by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, which states about Messiah that he would be one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, given great authority, glory, and sovereign power, 
and all nations and peoples of every language will worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So they were demanding that Jesus prove his messiahship to them by appearing in the heavens as the Son of Man in glory and establishing a visible kingdom. Did you know that is a true sign of the Messiah? Not only is it a favorite sign with the Jews, but also one which Jesus did acknowledge. He constantly spoke of himself, alluding to that very sign as the Son of Man. But why then did he not gratify their expectations? The answer, according to Bible scholars, is that the Jewish nation sought that sign too soon because coming in the clouds with glory is indeed a sign of the second advent, the second coming of Messiah. There must be a second coming because Messiah is described in prophecy as two distinct characters, which he could not fulfill at one and the same time. First, he was to come in the character of a priest to make atonement for sin in humiliation, suffering, and death. But he's also to come in the character of a king, Messiah ben David, in glory and immortality, to sit upon the throne of his ancestral father David. Jesus had then appeared in the first of these two messianic portraits. He must first suffer before he can enter into his glory, and therefore also before he can be revealed in his glory. In the second biblical portrait of Messiah as king, he promises in due time to appear again. And so we are eagerly awaiting that second coming of Jesus. On his first coming, Jesus didn't give the Jewish people the sign from heaven, from Daniel chapter 7, but rather he gave them a sign from the earth. The sign, as we have seen that they sought, was that the prophet Daniel but instead he gave them first the sign of the prophet Jonah. Can you see that? They sought the sign of the kingdom of glory. Jesus first had to give them the sign of the priesthood and the suffering servant. He said the sign of Jonah was best suited for his generation and it fulfilled the near sacrifice of Isaac. If the Lord had answered their ill-timed prayer, he would have appeared without a sacrifice for sin. So Jesus wisely rested his claims upon this sign of Jonah, the sign of death and resurrection power. The Bible teaches that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Yet, and please hear me, Jesus also warned us solemnly that if we're not willing to forsake everything for him, we cannot be his disciples. So let's get serious with following the Lord with prayer and daily Bible reading and watching earnestly for the second coming of the Lord. These dangerous times demand serious discipleship. And if you have any questions and if I can help you in any way, I invite you to contact me via the social media or explore our website, exploits.tv which has lots of articles and videos to strengthen your faith. By the way, the name Exploits comes from Daniel 11.32, 
which says that the people who know God will be strong, not weak, and will take action. That means will carry out exploits, the genuine works of the Lord. We also invite you to download our free Jerusalem Channel app from your app store. And so until our next time together, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha.